So with that being said, we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through to 11. And we've been in 1 Peter now for, well, months. Uh, we began 1 Peter back in March, in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. It was in the first couple weeks when things seemed relatively uncertain that Mark sent me a text message and he said, hey, I feel like God is leading our church to maybe study the first chapter or two of 1 Peter during this season. And naively at the time, we thought that this series and this season in the life of our nation and world would last a couple weeks. And here we are in September, still in 1 Peter uh, and still battling this pandemic. Uh, And yet we are at the end of 1 Peter now. Uh, Today is our last day in this letter that was written to the church in Asia Minor. Last week, uh, Peter began what is called his farewell discourse. This is what theologians refer to this section of the book as. These are Peter's sort of final words, his final warnings, his final instructions for the church. And so Mark preached from an earlier portion of chapter 5 where Peter addresses leaders, pastors, elders, shepherds. And he warns the leaders of the church not to be domineering, not to be overbearing, not to be harsh, but to walk in humility and kindness towards God's people. Peter also warned us, even if we're not elders, to walk in humility, to walk in kindness and to be gracious. And in our passage this morning, Peter continues to address not just the leaders of the church, but all Christians when he says this in verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I don't know if you know this about me, and maybe it'll surprise you to to learn this about me, Uh, but I love horror movies. And maybe that's a a shocking thing for you to hear. I don't know when this began. Uh, I remember being in elementary school and loving Frankenstein's monster and the wolfman the creature from the Black Lagoon and Dracula and the Invisible Man and all these classic universal monster movies. And that has been with me since I was young. And even now, especially in college, my friends and I would set aside our Friday nights to make a bunch of pizza rolls and junk food and watch movies that would scare the living daylights out of us. But we had one rule. The, the one rule was we do not watch anything related to demons or possession. That is off limits. It was a couple years ago that there was a a film that came out that we knew was a a scary movie, and it received something like a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, you should know that never happens. That never happens. Scary movies never receive good reviews. Critics hate this stuff. And so me and another friend of mine who's kind of an art house film buff said, yeah, we should go see that. I mean, that's pretty rare. And we went into the theater not knowing anything about the movie that that we went in to see, which was a mistake. It was a massive mistake because we unintentionally broke our rule. And I remember having a conversation with somebody else who had seen this movie a a couple days later, 
And it looked like he hadn't slept in days. There were bags under his eyes. He walked with his shoulders down. And he was a friend of mine. He's not a believer, but he knew that I was a pastor. And he said, hey, I watched that movie. And I, I have not been able to shake it. And I said, yeah, I kind of wish I hadn't seen it. And he said, does the Bible talk about things like that? Does, does the Bible say anything about the, the spiritual realm, demons and angels? And, and I said, yeah, actually. I, I never thought that, that a movie would lead to a conversation about the gospel, and I don't recommend this as your primary form of evangelism. <laughs> that wasn't my intention. And yet... His question is a good one. What does the Bible say about these realities, the spiritual realm? Increasingly, our world is interested in these sort of conversations. You know, it was in the 60s that Jerry Garcia described the mood of his society. He said, people are losing faith in reality. This can't be all that there is. There is not enough of it. It does not require enough of me. And you might say, well, that was the 60s and that was a long time ago, but things are different now. You know, we often think of our present age as a secular one. We think that the next generation that's coming up is increasingly atheistic. But generally speaking, that's actually not true. In 2018, The Atlantic published an article documenting the rise of practices such as astrology and the use of horoscopes among millennials. That's my generation. My generation that was supposed to be filled with atheists are checking their signs in the paper every morning. There's another study that was published recently that showed that over 55% of Sweden considers themselves to be non-religious and just as many of them believe in the existence of spirits and trolls. The same is true of other secular nations in Europe. People are still spiritual, they just don't come to church. I don't know if you've ever tried to hold a beach ball under the water before. I don't go to the beach very often. But when I do, I try and make the most of it. And for a while, you might be able to hold that beach ball underwater. You might be able to suppress it. But eventually, the beach ball always wins unless you cheat and deflate it. The beach ball always comes back to the surface. And the same is true of spirituality. Solomon tells us that God has written eternity in our hearts and try as we might to suppress that and say that there's nothing more than this physical world. Eventually, one way or another, whether it's through horoscopes or trolls, everyone concedes that there is more to life than just what we can see in front of us. There is a spiritual dimension to human existence. And if the statistics that I just mentioned are right, then we are living in a time much like the 60s, in which people are more spiritual than ever. They are once again losing faith in this reality. There has to be more than this. And this is where scripture meets us. Because the Bible says, and Christians have believed since the beginning of the church, that reality is more than just the sum of the physical world, that we are not just chemicals and atoms that we have both a body and a soul. And evil is more than just minds and matter doing things that inconvenience us. Evil is driven by our own sinful and fallen natures, 
but it's also driven by spiritual forces. And there are many spiritual forces that the Bible describes, but Peter, in this passage, draws our attention to one in particular. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I realize that when you hear the word the devil, there's probably a mental image that comes into your mind, and I would venture to say that the picture that you have in your mind right now is shaped in large part by pop culture. You're thinking of the exorcist. Or, probably, more likely, you're thinking of a man with a goatee and a pitchfork like what you saw in Looney Tunes. When we hear the devil, culture influences the the picture that comes to our mind. So, So if we are going to have a conversation today about the reality of spiritual warfare and the reality of uh, the supernatural, then I think it's important that we get uh, some definitions under our belts and clear the way. So when the Bible talks about the devil, I think Graham Cole says it best. According to the biblical testimony, the devil or Satan is a fallen angel. Satan's origins are mysterious, and although there are hints in the biblical testimony, Caution is in order. At times, the spiritual being of immense power and cunning works his mischief as an angel of light. Other times, he is like a ravenous lion on the prowl. He is a spoiler. He is a disuniter. He is an enemy of the interpersonal. And temptation has been his specialty from the beginning. This is the figure that Peter is speaking of in our passage. He warns us that our adversary, our enemy, The devil prowls like a lion, waiting to find someone to devour. A little while back, my wife and my brother and I decided to go hiking on the Appalachian Trail. This is sort of a tradition my brother and I have had for a number of years, and this was my wife's first time joining us. And as we were driving to the trailhead, um, we we had a conversation about bears. My in-laws own a cabin in the mountains of North Georgia, and they have a security cam there, and they're constantly showing us footage of the bears that have gotten into the trash at the cabin. So we are keenly aware of the fact that bears are not just like Winnie the Pooh. They are big, and they are scary, and they can do very bad things to you. And so as we're driving to the trailhead, we were talking about, so what is it that we do if we encounter a bear? What are best practices for surviving such an encounter. As we got out of the car, we continued to talk about how we would handle the threat that was looming somewhere in the woods. We were gonna cook our food away from our camp. We were gonna put our food in bags and we were gonna hang it in a tree 100 yards away. Because when danger is near, we want to know how we should handle it. So what is it that Peter tells us to do? He warns us of this potential danger, our adversary, this spiritual enemy of God's people. How does he tell us to be prepared for this? What are the best practices? Well, he he gives two initial pieces of advice in verse 8. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful. And you can think of these as weights on opposite sides of a scale. They balance each other out. The first thing that Peter tells us to do is to be sober-minded. That is to say that we need to see the situation clearly. We don't need to overreact to things. 
and we don't need to underreact to things. C.S. Lewis, in the introduction to his book, The Screwtape Letters, says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which the human race can fall regarding devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In different branches of Christianity and in different moments, the church has been tempted to fall into equally opposite errors. I think there are many in the church who, and I would say I see this especially on social media, we are obsessed with finding Satan's invisible hand behind every single election and event that we don't like. Every person that we didn't vote for that gets elected, we are sure is the work of the devil. And when you get that Publix receipt for your sandwich that is $6.66, you are convinced that doom is at hand. There was a, there was a great example of this sort of panic a, a number of years ago. It was in 2014. There was a lady who had set up a booth at a convention, and she had printed a, a large image of the Monster Energy logo. And she had convinced herself that the logo for Monster Energy Drink was a symbol of the beast, and that somehow the devil had infiltrated God's people by getting them to drink too much caffeine. So let me, let me just say very clearly, that approach is absurd. And I need to say it because I see it constantly. It is ridiculous. And it minimizes and damages the credibility of the gospel because we as Christians become conspiracy theorists who can find a way to twist every isolated incidence into evidence of the demonic. It is not obeying Peter's commandment to be sober-minded. That is not what sober-mindedness looks like. But there is another equally opposite error that we can fall into because I think that there are those of us who functionally don't believe in the demonic at all. If every verse about spiritual darkness in the Bible were to vanish, it would change nothing in our lives. That is a dangerous place to be as well. I mean, that's, that's the equivalent of cooking in your tent and keeping the food with you overnight while Winnie the, Winnie the Pooh is roaming the woods. That's unwise. So, so let me speak equally as clearly here. If your Christianity leaves no room for an adversary that scripture calls the devil, then you're going to have a hard time dealing with Jesus because Jesus' ministry regularly brought him into confrontation with the demonic. Now, we, we as Christians, we can't be sensationalistic and we can't be reductionistic. We have to be realistic, sober-minded, Peter says, when we confront spiritual evil. Peter says, be sober-minded, but here's the other thing that he says. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Be watchful. Uh, we, we shouldn't go through our Christian lives with blinders on. When Mickey, Justin, and I were hiking on the Appalachian Trail, uh, I'll, I'll just admit to you, we didn't do a whole lot of planning. Uh, we just said, we'll hike until we find a cool place to camp that looks good in pictures. That was about seven miles uphill. <laughs> And so we reached a cool place that looked good in pictures as the sun was going down. It was the top of Springer Mountain in Georgia. 
and we threw our packs down and we set up our tents and we set up everything to, to, to be ready to finally relax and enjoy this view. And that was when we noticed the signs stapled on all the trees. Do not camp here. Heavy bear activity. Now we had cell phone reception. And so we immediately Googled bear attacks on Springer Mountain and couldn't find anything. And so we were like, this is whatever. At least initially. I didn't say anything until I went to go get firewood and I saw large, thick clumps of black fur all across the trail. And I came back and I said, hey guys, we're moving. (laughs) Because even if we don't see a bear tonight, every twig that snaps, I will be convinced is a bear. The the reality is that that we are not simply to be sober-minded. We are to be watchful. We we are to keep our eyes uh, peeled, if you will, for the work of our adversary so that we can be on guard. So, So what does it mean to be watchful? What is it that we should look for? What is it that we should watch for as Christians so that we can be on guard? I'll tell you, movies have conditioned us to think that it looks like throwing up pea soup and head spinning around. But I think the reality of Satan's influence is much more subtle and it hits much closer to home. The the first words that that Satan utters in scripture come in Genesis chapter three. God has created a perfect world. He has placed Adam and Eve in a garden filled with food. He says you can eat of any tree save for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan approaches Eve. And the first thing he says in the whole storyline of Scripture is, did God really say, you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Well, God didn't say that at all. But the first move that Satan makes is to question God's word. Satan is at work when God's truth and character and word are Questioned. And Eve sort of pushes back and she says, that's not what God said. And Eve sort of gets it wrong. She doesn't quite remember what God said either, but she's at least a little bit closer to the truth. And then Satan comes back and he says, I know God told you that you would die when you ate from this tree, but you won't die. Surely you will not die. Actually, God knows that if you do this, you will be like him. Okay, side note. There's this whole part in Genesis 1 where we're told that human beings are made in the image of God. Eve's response should have been, we are already like him. But Eve accepts the lie of the serpent. She she is convinced by Satan that behind God's commandments, God is trying to keep something good from them. That God's instructions don't actually bring life, they keep and withhold life. Satan implies that God is keeping something good from Adam and Eve by not letting them eat from the tree. Very little has changed since then. That is the same pattern. Did God really say to love your wife like Christ loved the church? I mean, I know that's what Paul said, but he hasn't met the person that you married, and surely if he had, he would have made an exception for you. Did God really say that we shouldn't forsake 
the community of faith. I mean, I can kind of just hang out by myself and read my Bible and never bother to have community with other Christians. Did God really say that sex is to be reserved for the covenant of marriage? Well, what if you're not sexually compatible? That could ruin everything. God's trying to keep something good from you. On and on and on it goes. It is the same lie that was told in Eden. But it doesn't just cut in one direction. There is more than one way to question the character of God. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, the Father spoke over him and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And you know what happens immediately after that? Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. And what does Satan say to him in every temptation? If you are the son of God. I know what God said. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But if, if that's true, that might not be true. If you are the son of God. I wonder how often Something like this is true of us. God has spoken over us in the gospel. He has declared that we are forgiven and we are free, and yet our enemy constantly casts doubt on that for us. Our sins are thrown back in our faces. We are constantly reminded of who we used to be before we were ransomed by Christ. We are tempted to doubt the promise of new life in Jesus. None of this is new. This is what it looks like for your adversary to prowl like a roaming lion. Another way that we see the work of our adversary is through idolatry. Satan is at work when idolatry is pervasive. Throughout the storyline of scripture, one of the great works of the devil is to lead God's people to worship false gods. We're about to jump back into the book of Exodus as a church, and I'll spoil it for you. God leads Israel out of Egypt, and Israel melts all of the gold they got from Egypt turns it into an idol and says, this is the God that saved us, let's worship him instead. And that happens over and over and over again. You can jump forward to Solomon in the book of 1 Kings. God makes Solomon the wisest man who ever lived. And within 30 years, Solomon has altars on the Mount of Olives and he's offering child sacrifices to the god Moloch. Idolatry is one of our adversary's chief means of deception. Of course, I doubt that there are any of us who have little golden altars in our house where we worship false gods. But I'll tell you that idolatry runs deeper than that. It's more than statues. One one theologian says that idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. That goes beyond physically worshiping statues. And it gets at the heart of something that is pervasive when we teach and celebrate things about God that aren't true. That is idolatry. And that is our adversary at work. Can I tell you this is rampant in the American church? There's a study done in 2018 that interviewed evangelical Christians and it found that 78% of them agreed with the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now maybe you haven't taken my church history class because we go over this. 
That's a little plug. That's Arianism. It's heresy. It was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. It has been rejected by Christians who believe the Bible for nearly 2,000 years. Jesus is not created. Jesus is eternal. He was with God in the beginning. And here's the sad thing to me. 78% of evangelical Christians in America don't just affirm it, but they heartily affirm it. While the evangelical church is trying to figure out which political leader that they didn't vote for is the Antichrist and how the monster energy logo is actually a satanic symbol, we are missing the actual work of the devil. We have a generation of Christians who do not know the basics of Christianity and believe things about God that are idolatrous and heretical. That is the work of our adversary, not the logo of an energy drink. Finally, I think that we see the work of our adversary, the devil, when the church is divided, when the people of God are divided. One of the most profound moments in the Gospels comes when Jesus prays on the, on the eve of his crucifixion. He says, I'm not just praying for the disciples, I'm praying for all of those who will believe. He prays for us, Baylife. And here's one of the chief things Jesus prays, that they would be one, even as you and I are one, Father. And yet from the very foundations of the church, we see the devil at work sowing seeds of division among God's people. It comes as false apostles to the Corinthians. It comes as divisions between Jews and Gentiles to the Galatians. Our adversary prowls like a lion, trying to split the church to shatter its foundation. And that's not to say that there aren't good reasons for Christians to separate from one another. Where, where false teaching, where sin is rampant, that is necessary. But the church, on the whole, seems to be really good at breaking fellowship with other Christians over issues in which the gospel is not actually at stake. I think in our current moment, what's more likely is that our adversary will divide us along political lines. As I scroll through social media and see the sort of things that many of us are posting about the people on the other side of the aisle from us, I can't help but wonder if our adversary doesn't rejoice. Because we're incapable of talking to each other. We post things as though we don't care that there are people that we will sit next to at church who will be deeply hurt by the things that we say. And that is demonic. So pay close attention. Pay very close attention to what Peter says here. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion. Not your adversary, the Democrats. Not your adversary, the Republicans. Your adversary, the devil. Baylife, we are coming into an election season and I need you to keep this straight. The enemy of the church is Satan, not a political party. The enemy of the church is our adversary, the devil, not our brothers and sisters in the Lord with whom we disagree, even if they're misguided. He is the enemy of unity in God's people, and he will devour us if we give him a foothold.
So in the face of an adversary like this, what do we do? How, how do we confront our adversary, the devil? Peter tells us in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. How do we resist the devil? Jesus gives us a picture. If you think back to his temptation in the wilderness, again and again and again, three times Satan approaches him and says, if you are the son of God, I know what the father said in your baptism, but it's probably not true. If it is true, why don't you prove it? And Jesus' response again and again and again is, it is written. And he proceeds to quote scripture. Jesus confronts the attacks of our adversary with bedrock confidence in the truthfulness of scripture. And keep in mind, Jesus is in the desert pre-iPhone. Jesus does not have the version Bible app. And the Bible was not portable at this point in human history. Jesus is quoting scripture from memory. He has been so saturated from the days of his youth with the word of God that he naturally confronts every attack of the enemy with the truth of God's word. Baylife, if we are to be a church that resists our adversary, we must be a church that knows and loves and cherishes the Bible. If your only engagement with scripture is, is on Sunday mornings, I would invite you to step more deeply into God's word. We have plenty of ways to help you do that. From podcasts to resources to blogs to classes, we wanna help you saturate yourself in this book. Your adversary is a lion seeking someone to devour. Don't bring a pocket knife into this fight. Bring scripture which is sharper than any two-edged sword. We also resist our adversary through prayer. Listen, it is foolish to think that we can do this on our own. Our adversary is too strong for us to resist him in our own strength. We desperately need to be before the Lord in prayer, confessing and repenting of sin, asking for the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance, pleading on our king for strength. So if you don't make a habit of regular prayer, let me implore you to change that. Too much is at stake for prayerless Christians to be the norm. But I don't think we just resist our adversary through our own prayers. We resist the devil by way of the one who prays for us. There, there's something powerful about knowing that someone is praying for you, isn't there? I mean, how many of us have been in a difficult situation and someone has sat down and prayed with you? Maybe it was one of our prayer partners, maybe it was your life group leader, maybe it was somebody that you know here at the church. And there's something powerful about someone approaching God on your behalf. My, my family has experienced this in the last month in, in a profound way. At the beginning of August, my dad went in for a routine checkup and was diagnosed with cancer. And we did not expect that. And we're not happy about it. But the first thing that, that I did, the first thing I thought to do, was to reach out to my friends, the guys who had stood beside me in my wedding, all of whom are believers. And so I went to my friend Josh, who I've known for 20 years. And they said, hey man, this is, this is what's happening and I don't know what to do, but can you please pray? And he immediately went and told his parents and his whole family started praying. I reached out to my friend Zach, 
I was in Zach's wedding. Zach was in my wedding. I've known Zach for a decade. And he said, let's pray right now. Let's go before the Lord in prayer right now. I called my friend Kevin, who's an elder at a church in the city. And he said, let's pray right now over the phone. Let's pray. And those prayers were the foundation of the strength that we needed to move forward in this battle. I needed their prayers. I needed them, and they were what gave me strength to face the days ahead so that by God's grace, we can see my dad healthy and whole again. Peter knew the power of being prayed for. If you think back to the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, before Peter had denied Christ, Jesus spoke to him. And he said, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you so that he could sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. The same Jesus who prayed for Peter's faith to withstand the attacks of the enemy prays now for us. He prays for us at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. That should strengthen us for the days ahead. And that also underscores something that I think is important because so often when we talk about spiritual warfare, and maybe you even sense this in your own heart when I said that what's, that's what we were gonna talk about. We talk about spiritual warfare and people want a checklist. Like here are the things that you need to do. Here's the number of crucifixes you should hang in your house. Here's the movies you shouldn't watch. Here's how many times you should say the Lord's Prayer. But ultimately, the, the, the strongest defense that we have against our adversary is not the result of anything that we've done or can do. It's the result of what has been done for us. The most powerful thing that we can do to resist the devil is to make much of the cross. It's to rest in the work of Jesus. Again and again and again in scripture, Satan is referred to as the accuser. Peter here refers to him as the adversary. In the Greek, that is a legal term. It's the term for a prosecuting attorney. It's, it's the person who points at the defendant and says, this is what they've done. This is what they're guilty of. This is what they deserve. This is the judgment that should come their way. And Satan does this even today. He condemns. He reminds us of our failures. He reminds us that we deserve judgment. And without the cross, he is not lying. He's right. But the cross of Christ renders our adversary powerless. For centuries, theologians have debated what actually happened at the cross. There's two prominent theories of atonement is what they're called. One of them is substitutionary atonement. The idea is that Jesus on the cross took the punishment that we deserved. He was our substitute. The other one is called Christus Victor, that, that Jesus on the cross defeated the forces of evil and broke Satan's power over us. And both of these camps go back and forth and they argue and they're mean to each other and they say bad things about each other on blogs. But it's a false dichotomy. It's not an either or, it's both. That by being our substitute, 
Jesus has broken Satan's hold over us. Let me explain what I mean. Um, When I was in kindergarten, I had my first experience with what I might call a frenemy. Someone who sat next to me, we'll call him John. That's a vague name. I'm sorry if your name's John in here. And John was nice, but when John wanted something from me, he would threaten to tell the teacher on me for any mistake I'd made. So if I'd cut in line for the swing set and I had a piece of candy that John wanted, he'd say, I'll tell the teacher if you don't give me that candy. Or if I was drawing a picture that John wanted, John would say, you need to draw me one of those or I'll tell the teacher that you called Susie stupid on the playground. John ruled over me with an iron fist because he had the power to accuse me. Well, he wasn't wrong. I had indeed cut in line on the playground. But what would have happened if my teacher had walked over to my table and said, I know what you did. I know that you deserve to be punished, but you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven. There's no condemnation for you, Travis. He loses all power over me. His accusation is rendered empty. This is exactly what has happened at the cross. By being our substitute, Christ has become victorious over our enemy. Paul says that God has triumphed over the powers of darkness at the cross. Jesus says as he goes to the cross, the ruler of this world stands condemned. So if you would resist your adversary, the devil, make much of the cross of Christ because through it you have been set free from his powers of accusation. Through it the division that separated human beings has been rendered useless. The cross is the basis of the unity of the church. It is the basis of our fellowship. It is the basis of our freedom. Peter tells the church in Asia Minor that we should know that the suffering we're experiencing is being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. Here's the reality. If you are a Christian, spiritual warfare is unavoidable. This is the reality of the Christian life. It is experienced by Christians all throughout the world. This is a battle that everyone who follows Jesus takes up. And yet this is not like other wars. And this is not like other battles. Because the end of this war is already certain. The end of this battle is already in sight. The cross was the decisive defeat of our adversary, the devil. And Paul says that one day, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. But for now, Baylife, we have a battle to fight. So may God make us a church that is sober-minded, that is watchful, that is ready to resist our adversary through the power of the cross. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, life is hard. Life is difficult. The battle is real. And you've warned us of it in your word. And yet we thank you that you have not left us on our own here. 
We thank you that you have sent the Spirit, that you have given us access to you through prayer. Lord, we thank you that you've given us our, your word, which is truth that we can rest in. We thank you that at the cross, Christ broke the power of our adversary and we can rest in his victory. Help us to do that, we pray, so that your kingdom may come and your will may be done here on earth in Brandon as it is in heaven. We ask all of these things in the name of our victorious Savior Jesus and we say amen.